Uh, we are looking at Nahum, Zephaniah, and Haggai today, and those are books that you probably haven't read that much, and that's all right. Let's take, we've, we've gotten kind of an idea of what the minor prophets are all about already. We're going to talk today about change. Change is constant. You don't have to like it. You don't have to be in favor of it. But if you don't like change, you pick the wrong universe. This place changes. Every decision we make places us on a different road. Robert Frost, great American poet, talking about the road less traveled. And he said, I chose the road less, less traveled and that made all the difference. All of our choices are hinge points. I want you to think of this for a while. Sometimes we think of it in terms of a, of a decision tree. But when you do that, sometimes you can get distracted by all the different branches. Think of it as a hinge point. Every decision we make, there's a hinge point and we've changed our direction. Every decision others make, hinge point, changes. And then events do that as well. Whether it is the birth of somebody or loss of a job or the death of somebody or the change in a law even. Weather, storms can change direction. We're constantly changing. We hope we change for the better. In fact, when we do our wedding vows and we talk about for better or worse, we really are hoping for better and better and better. But we're aware it can be worse. It can go bad. At least you don't do what the, the British have this line in their vows where the guy is supposed to say, I do thee all my earthly goods endow. What do you have at that stage to endow? Basically, you know, there goes the bicycle. Um, we, we're aware things will go up and down in your life. Jack Axum, one of the great Church of Christ preachers of the, the last century, came to do a seminar for us years and years ago. We'd just first come to America. It's probably late 80s. And uh, he, he talked about his life goal was to become a sweet old man. And at that stage, he was. Now, later, I told my wife, I said, you know, that's a great goal. I think I'd like to be a sweet old man. And she looked at me and she said, you might want to start. You know, so she's, you know, she's, her honesty helps me. Change. Now, you may wonder what all this change has to do with, with Nahum, Zephaniah, and Haggai. Actually, quite a lot. Let's go back to Nineveh. You remember Nineveh, the story of Jonah and Nineveh, that massive city back then? It had been under a death sentence. Jonah was sent to preach to it. He didn't like them. When they repented, he didn't, he wasn't happy about that either. Only successful prophet in the Old Testament, and he wasn't happy about it. Odd, that. And yet, they repented, and God said, I've changed the sentence, a hinge point. You were going this direction. I've moved it here now. You're not going to be destroyed. Now, the book of Nahum was written about 100 years later. 100 years later, the people had changed again. They had forgotten about Jonah. They'd forgotten about God. They were wicked once again. So God changed. I know we don't like talking about that because there are verses that say, the Lord changes not. What that means is his character doesn't change. It's not like us. You know, it's, it's the old story. It's a terrible old story joke thingy. But, you know, a guy asking another man, do you wake up grumpy in the morning? And he goes, no, I let her sleep. We all have, we all have days where we wake up better than others. 
You know, I never wake up popping out of the bed like toast, all full of joy. That's not me. I'm, I'm more rolling out of the bed and moaning and complaining and calling down death and destruction. But some days I do it in a more perky manner. We're variable like that. We have different personality. God has one personality, but he has unlimited methods. And we've got to get used to this. Because we keep trying to put him one personality, one box, one way of doing everything. No, God likes variety. Have you looked at creation? Everything from the bird of paradise to the elephant, he can do stuff. When he has bits left over at the platypus, he is not afraid to do things in a creative way. So Judah had gone to God and said, help us, Nineveh is militaristic again, and they're coming after us. God says, I noticed. Look what he says in Nahum chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, and then 12 through 13. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. You want to remember the refuge thing. We're going to keep coming back to that. He cares for those who trust in him, but with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. Whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. This is what the Lord says. Although they have allies and are numerous, they will be destroyed and pass away. Although I've afflicted you, Judah, I'll do so no more. Now I'll break their yoke from their, your neck and tear your shackles away. Now wait a minute. Didn't God back in Jonah promise not to destroy Nineveh? Yeah. Isn't he now saying he's going to? Yes. Why? Because they changed, so he changed. They didn't keep up their promise. Therefore, his promise is null and void. It's rather, think of it this way. When we moved here, we bought a house. And as bizarre as it sounds, the bank expects a payment every month. We already bought the house, but they still want stuff from us every month. If we decided not to give them that money, the contract would be null and void, and they could come take the house. We all understand this. God's contracts with us, his promises are based upon, let's work together. When you change, he can change too. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about God reaching a breaking point. That upset a few of you. You didn't think I was telling you a lie. It's just you hadn't thought of it. And some of you got in touch with me that next week and said, wait a minute, have I reached God's breaking point? Have I gone too far? Here's the test. There is a test for this. Get a mirror. Breathe into it. If it fogs, you got a shot. Because <laughs> covenants are for the living. If you can't fog a mirror, you're dead. Too late not baptizing you anymore. But if you can fog a mirror, you got a shot. If you can't see yourself in a mirror, you're a vampire. It's a different story. But if you... Oh, he's concerned. Did you... Well, completely off the notes. For a guy that can't see himself in a mirror, he dresses well, doesn't he? Uh, but anyway, oh, his hair is so neat. Uh, moving on. I have a lot of time. This is just a Sunday gig. So... Um, 
the rest of the book of Nahum is a sermon against Nineveh. It's a pretty rough sermon as well. It might have even been the sermon that Jonah delivered that we never got. All we got is the one sentence, you know, 40 days and Nineveh shall fall. That's all we got. But maybe he preached a harsh sermon like this. But God says this time it's going to be forever. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do these verses because we're running a wee bit late. We have one week left on these classes, so I don't want to take too much time away from the classes. But you can read the story for yourself. Naaman's a short book. He says, when I come after you this time, it'll be forever. I'm wiping you out. I'm taking away your allies. And so he did. So he did. The Babylonians came in and took over the Assyrians. They can get really confusing. The Syrians beating up the Assyrians. But that's not their fault. We're the ones that named them that. They had other names for themselves. Anyway, Babylon comes, Nebuchadnezzar comes, and destroys Nineveh. Nobody thought it could happen, but he does. And Nineveh has never been a player since. It's in modern-day Iraq. And if you go there today, not recommended. If you go there today, it's a bunch of ruins, a bunch of sheep and goats, a few huts and tents, and that's about it. From the largest city on the planet, by far, to this God says, I'm just going to make sure this is not a, a problem anymore. So we go to Zephaniah. Now, while Nahum is preaching to Nineveh, Zephaniah is preaching to Judah. Like most of these small books, I know it sounds repetitive after a while. Destruction and grace, destruction and grace. But Zephaniah adds something else in, a threat. God will go silent. If you ask people, what's the opposite of love? Most people will say the opposite of love is hate. No, not even close. The opposite of love is apathy. Hate's still an emotion. They're still reacting to you. Apathy is the opposite of love. What is the opposite of community? Silence. God says, I may step back from you. I might not help you. That's terrifying. If God says, I'm coming against you with my mighty hand, at least we're still in contact. If he says, I'm going to leave you, that's terrifying. Zephaniah, by the way, it was unlike the other prophets. He was royal. He was the great-great-grandson of King Hezekiah. He was the cousin of King Josiah. But God had a troubling message for him. Moms and dads, grandparents, I need you to listen. Zephaniah was told by God, it looks good. Everybody's going to church. But your kids don't believe. They look like they believe. They act like they believe. They keep their traditions, but they're not really in agreement with God. They have an outward agreement with God, not an inward agreement with God. If you look through Scripture, you see worship changing all the time. And I find it fascinating that even though we can see that and document it, if there's a change in worship today, people are appalled. Oh, we've lost faithfulness, not understanding. It's not the outward worship that concerns God. It's the inner worship. What's going on inside Many are appalled if worship changes even a bit, but they're not appalled with anger, bitterness, greed, gluttony, 
anything else. We need to be appalled by the things that appall God. One Chinese Christian is reported to have said, in answer to the question, how did the most Christian nation on the planet in one generation go from the most Christian nation on the planet to murder and communist rule? And his response was, we forgot to teach our children. We thought that they were going to church with us, they understood. Had a young lady in my office in her mid-twenties years ago, and she was asking me for help with her boyfriend that she lived with, who was hitting her every now and then. Uh, I had some strong words with her about such a man and how she could not fix him, she had to leave. And she said, well, I've run into this problem before, this other guy I lived with. And I looked at her and I said, now you were raised in this church, right? And she goes, yes. And I said, let me give you a bizarre idea. She says, what? I said, God has this idea that you don't sleep with somebody or live with them until you're covenanted, committed to each other. And then you live with each other. Only after marriage, after the covenant, she looked at me and she goes, really? That girl had been raised in that church. And she had not absorbed this. We often make sure they observe, or rather absorb baptism, highly important. The way we worship, our traditions are good. I like them. I think God does too and honors them. We need to make sure their hearts are converted. And that's where we fall down quite a bit if you're not doing it at home. Because if they only go to school as often as they go to church, they're going to die in elementary school. Because, in fact, if you, only, if you go to a Bible class every Sunday and you went to school that often, it would take you more than 40 years to get out of first grade. You understand now why we tend to raise immature Christians? You've got to do it at home, too. You have to teach at home. Look at Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 10, if we could put that one up. And thank you for being flexible for me today. In spite of all of this, her unfaithful sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense, declares the Lord. Where are we when we sing? Where are we when we pray? Where are we when we listen to the word? Where are we when we read the word? This world is a noisy place full of distractions. How can we find a way to come to God in truth and not just in pretense? Nobody likes pretense. That's why politicians grate on us. You know, hi, you're the most important person in the world to me. Sure, right, yeah, I get it. The fake smiles and the like. I'm sure that there are some very warm politicians. I, I preached the same way here that I did in Detroit, and no, I haven't learned any better. And one of our members was a state senator. And eventually he came up to me and he goes, you know I'm a politician, don't you? And I said, oh, Alan, I hope not. <laughs> and he looked at me and I said, I hope you're a servant of the public, not a politician. He thought about it a while and he goes, okay, good point. <laughs> we went from there. I, let's, let's just not, let's just, let's make sure we understand God wants the heart. He wants it all there. God wants internal change. 
Stephen Curtis Chapman years ago had a song about the change. He talked about he had, you know, what would Jesus do on his his bracelet and he, had, he bought the t-shirt and he had had, a, had the right cover on his Bible and all the other but he said but what about the change what about the difference and I think that idea of we know we know we need change is why every so often light bulb jokes go everywhere because we understand that concept of change you know how many chiropractors does it take to change a light bulb only one but it takes 10 visits that sort of thing you know how many church members does it take to change a light bulb on well four one to change it and three to talk about how much they like the old bulb better <laughs> you know, how many Zen Buddhists does it take to change a light bulb a fish that's actually brilliant um, I don't but anyway <laughs> And although it's not a problem here, you know, how many church elders does it take to change a light bulb? Change, what do you mean change? We don't need to change, that sort of. We all know about change and we find humor in it. And we'll talk about change. You know, I, I looked at four grandchildren on the couch this week as they're taking pictures, trying to herd them on the couch. And it's like herding ferrets who've just had espresso. But they get them on there. Most of the pictures are blurry, but I believe four are there. And on the way home, I was thinking, how did this happen? I wasn't expecting that kind of change in my life. Change happens. So what do we do in the face of change? Complacency is not an option. Look at Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. At that time, I will search. Think of, them, think of searching for an honest man. Diogenes and the like. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent. Those who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Their wealth will be plundered, their homes demolished. Though they build homes, they will not live in them. Though they plant vineyards, they will not drink the wine. The day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. The cry on the day of the Lord is better. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. We are not to wait for change. We are to seek it. We're not to sit here and wonder, why aren't the pews full? We're supposed to be thinking, what can we be doing different? How can we change to spread the kingdom better? And not every generation has this question. Every day has this question. We cannot do, as so many churches say, well, we have to maintain the faith because the world is just not interested. That's why they're not coming. Jesus didn't give you that option. He said, seek them. Find them. And guess what? He even went to synagogues, and God didn't come up with that. People did. But he went to them. If that's where they are, that's where he went. Salvation, by the way, is available even in the book of Zephaniah. But change is coming, and God makes sure they understand this is a limited time offer. Salvation's not going to stay on the table that long. We're going to skip those next verses and go now to Haggai. It's the second shortest book in the Bible, in the Old Testament, rather. It was written about two months before the book of Zephaniah. That's why we grouped them like we did. But the theme of his book is the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth. The Lord of hosts. Now that, it's a short book. And yet he mentions that phrase 14.
19 times. Now, the Lord of hosts is found about 300 times in the Old Testament, but to be, to, that kind of skews the figures. It wasn't mentioned at all in the first eight books of the Bible. It shows up first on the lips of a woman who wants a baby. Her name is Hannah. And the church has failed her. The church, frankly, has mistreated her. Her husband, I don't know if he's failed her or not. Society looks down upon her. She has nowhere to go. She considers herself a failure. And so she goes to God and says, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. I, what mother? I know my mother prayed that prayer with me, but that's a rare prayer. You give me a son and I'll give him away. And it's a noble prayer. It's a great prayer. What a prayer. But she knows she's going to need help, so she asks God to bring in the big guns. Bring everybody you've got, God. Bring in the host. The people in Haggai, I'll come back to host, are told to build the temple of God. Why did they have to be told? Well, they were living in luxury. They were fine. So they didn't feel the need to really build the temple of God. They were doing all right. Look at chapter 1 of Haggai, verses 2 through 6. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, The time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thoughts to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Anybody know what that feels like? He's saying, wait a minute. You're building places for you, and you forgot to build the place for me. We all have more than we need. We all hold back from God. We hold back from each other. And God's saying, really, is that working for you? Thinking of yourself rather than the community, does that really work for you? Back to the Lord of hosts, which is a community name. The name only shows up when Israel has reached the depths of failure and all is lost. Doesn't show up when they're slaves in the desert. Doesn't show up when they're wandering. It shows up when they reach the promised land and fail. It, it shows up when everything should be okay and they fail. So it's in, in Jeremiah 80 times, Haggai 14 times, Zechariah 50 times, Malachi 25 times before God goes silent. It's a warning. This is the name that David called for. We won't look at the passage. It's 1 Samuel 17. When David called for help against Goliath, he's, he was saying, God, bring the posse. Bring everybody you've got. It's the name that Jacob called when he looked and saw Esau was coming with an army. 
It's also the name of the group that showed up the night Jesus was born and looked at the people and said, don't be afraid. Why not be afraid? Because God is welcoming us into his community. He is the Lord of hosts, and that includes them, but it also includes you if you're willing. If you'll go to him, it includes you. He wants you in the group. You remember Jesus in Matthew 26, when the people were really thinking, ooh, we're in trouble here, we need help. Jesus said, I can call legions of angels. A legion back at that time, full strength, would have been six or 7,000 men. One angel killed over 100,000 warriors in one night in the Old Testament. And God, Jesus is saying, I can call more angels than you can count. He has a group. These angels free Peter from prison. They transport Philip to the eunuch and then back again. They attend to John on Patmos. And here's the kicker. Here's where we need to come down. God's warning us things change. It, it always does. I love science. I really do. I know it's geeky, nerdy, and the like, but I get all excited, and Cammie leaves the room before I start talking because she can see it coming. Whenever they flew by Pluto recently and Sharon, oh, that was great. Loved it. I loved it for a lot of reasons. One was that the, the British expert, the astrophysicist that they kept putting on to explain this online, it's Brian May, who was the guitarist for Queen, who I, music, science, it's, it's a natural fit. Anyway, <laughs> there he is. I'm just loving it. Uh, but what, did you notice? We've learned so much. Now things have changed. Well, wait a minute. Didn't you write a book about Pluto before? Yeah, but now we flew by it. It's changed. Okay. Remember all the foods that used to be good for you? Remember some of the foods that were bad for you, that are now good for you? Things change. In the midst of change, what can you hold on to? The city of God. The host of heaven. We hang in there. That's what doesn't change. I will die. He will not. This body will stop one day. His body, his believers, his people will not stop. It'll go on with us spiritually then. But here's the whole thing. Change happens. But God wants us to come together and be forever there. Like all fathers, he wants you all there. That's all he wants. Just have you there. Have you read Revelation? That's the whole point of Revelation. He gets us together. We're all together. But not just us, also all the ones that have been working for us, all these, what, millennia, eons, whatever you want to call them, the angels. The angels of the churches, the angels around the throne, the angels standing on the four corners of the earth, the angels holding back storms that would break us, angels with trumpets sounding judgment on the earth. All of these are mentioned in Scripture. Angels with vials full of the wrath of God, angels bound in the river of time who are prepared to slay a third of mankind to save you. 
angels of the waters, angel standing in the sea, an angel with the judgment seal of God, whose job it is to make sure that the children of God are marked to be kept safe. And an angel charged with getting the gospel to every person, and an angel who stands and says, come, get into the city. Haggai said, build the temple of God. And he meant a building, but he meant something bigger than that too. Make sure you and your children are in the host of God. Make sure you're moving the same direction he is, and all the changes of life will be changes, but let that never change, that God is our God. We may feel like we're not doing anything of any significant or lasting importance. People in Haggai's time thought that as well. They thought, why build a temple? We've already built them and they've been torn down. What's the point? God says, do it anyway. Do it anyway. See what I will do with it. What you do matters to God. Listen carefully. The host of heaven move when we move. But if you sit still, as Zephaniah said, you don't seek change, you'll be destroyed. We've got to move with God, and God has promised to move with us. I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to stand, and as we close, we're going to read together Psalm 46. Now, if you have not yet come to God in faith and baptism, I want you to go to one of our elders, one of our members, turn to somebody and say, I need to get to the city of God. We want to help you. Would you, it's, a, it's, it's 11 verses, going to take us a while. Let's do this. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms will fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Amen.